You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. After every war, someone has to clean up. Things won't straighten themselves up after all. Someone has to push the rubble to the side of the road so the corpse-filled wagons can pass. Someone has to get mired in scum and ashes, so for springs, splintered glass and bloody rags. Someone has to drag in a girder to prop up a wall. Someone has to glaze a window, rehang a door. Photogenic it's not and takes years. All the cameras have left for another war. You are listening to The End and the Beginning by Wislawa Simboshka. And now to the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. So it's a wonderful day here in Darmstadt. As you guys can probably see, it's sunny and all. And this is also very nice because in Germany earlier in March, we had a lot of cloudy days. So we are quite happy. I'm also very, very happy today to have here Professor Sandy Engelhardt. She is doing awesome, awesome research in computer-assisted intervention, image-guided surgery. She's a junior professor from University Hospital Heidelberg. She's leading our research group there on AI in cardiovascular medicine. So I think she's leading for more or less about one and a half years now, maybe more. But yeah, so she is one of the early career PIs who is doing really, really wonderful research on computer-assisted intervention and AI aspects of it. So it is it is my pleasure to welcome you here, Sandy. Thank you, Aniban. It's also a pleasure for me to be uh, on this podcast. I'm really excited and just let's see how our conversation is going today. So I'm really looking forward to have an exchange uh, with you. Perfect. So we always start with the first question, which is about your becoming years, who you are, how you have become. So, yeah. That's a very interesting question. So obviously I'm I'm born and, and raised in Germany. So I spent most of my life here in Germany. And I was actually born in East Germany. I had a, I would say, a very peaceful childhood there. Um, but I was not really grown up in a very academic environment, I would say. Actually, looking back now and that I ended up here is, I would say, quite surprising. <laughs> For example, 
Uh, in Germany, when you want to go to the university, you have to have a general qualification for university entrance. And I went to a school which was not offering that. It took me a while actually to realize that this is the way I want to go. I somehow, when I was still at school, I was mainly interested in, in math and also computers, I would say. Basically, I found it quite interesting also to go into this area to study this. And uh, what sparked my interest was always like the intersection between medicine and computer science. I ended up choosing a university, which is called a University of Koblenz-Landau. I went to, there was a specific study course called Computer Visualistic, we say in Germany, which is quite special because this is specialized on image processing and computer graphics. They offer some courses on, on medicine and I especially attended them at the interface between computer science and medicine, but not in a way that completely satisfied me. So very soon I decided I actually want to do a semester abroad because I have a deep, deep law for South Africa. Basically, I decided to do a semester abroad in South Africa and I've chosen to go to University of, of Cape Town, which is which has a really, really well-known medical faculty. And uh, it was a great, great adventure to be there, but also they offered really, really great courses. I basically ended up doing a course, an anatomy course there, uh, where we were able to dissect. And this was super, super interesting for me because beforehand I mostly have worked in medical imaging a little bit like, as a student assistant, et cetera, but I've never like, came close to a patient or whatever. And that was really, really exciting for me. So I ended up uh, being in Cape Town and four days a week, we were in the dissection hall and basically exploring the human body, which was, uh, I would say, an extraordinary experience. I would say this really, really sparked my, my, further sparked my interest into medicine. Apart from that, I also did an internship there at the Brain Imaging Center at Tigerberg Hospital. And I was working on a project with 3D printing, which back then was not really broadly applied in medicine, it was quite new. What was my task um, was basically to um, prepare a 3D printed object, which was a brain with a tumor such that the surgeon could uh, use this for, for planning of surgery. And um, what was so amazing at this project for me was that I could see the full patient journey from coming in into the brain imaging center. And the center had the first 3D Tesla MRI machine in Africa, which was quite a huge thing. And seeing this patient get scanned, it was a woman back then at my age, and she was very, very terrified to get the scan. And um, they figured out that she has a tumor in the motor cortex and this has had to be removed. I participated in the scan and I could see the whole process. I could derive the images and then do my image computation, etc. And weeks later, she had surgery and I could also attend the surgery, which was such an experience because the surgeon used then my model also to plan the surgery and stuff. And this really blew my mind. So I, I knew that okay, from this point on, I somehow want to be in this field. This basically mainly sparked my interest in, into this 
area. And then being back in Germany and after finishing master's, I was looking for PhD positions in these in these areas, basically. These were so my main points of why did I work in this or why do I now still work in this field? I think from that on, it was quite straightforward. So <laughs> I would say, so I already always stayed here and now I'm moving a little bit. I'm, we are doing a lot of things in cardiac surgery, but we are also now including more cardiology um, use cases in our work. So it's not entirely anymore uh, image guided interventions or surgery. It's also image processing, more traditional image processing. That's quite fascinating, actually, what you are saying. So starting from a more computer science background to actually seeing the workflow in hospital actually was really an eye-opening thing and basically a more or less life-changing thing for you in terms of your academic or career-wise. I guess I've seen a lot of novel things also in Africa like that sparked my interest in which are now becoming the topic also of Mikai, for example, research in the field of how can we make current research methods more affordable to countries, to third world countries, etc. In 2011, when I was there and I, I saw PhD students there working on such kind of things, I, I was really, really impressed. And I'm super glad that Mikai now comes to Africa in 2024. I think this is a really, really great move. I was hoping for Cape Town actually, but at some point, I guess, uh, because Cape Town is a great environment. They have a great medical faculty. I would love to see it at some point there. <laughs> well, at some point, maybe you will organize a Mikai and uh, you like you will be one of the general chairs and you will take it. <laughs> That would be a wonderful thing. So I guess one thing I wanted to know briefly, because if I see the Mikai, it's basically there is a clear divide into the Mik and Kai part. For example, me, I was trained in a very computer science way. I never thought of touching patients and stuff like that. So even though now we do more Kai research and that's very close to the clinical reality that you are talking about. In the last few years, after the challenge data and everything is becoming available, MIC is very much computer science. From your perspective, do you think that being a CHI person somehow remind you more to the reality of clinic? In some ways, doing a CHI project is probably sometimes more difficult because you just have to organize more. Yeah? And for example, I could easily do medical imaging. I could go to a website. I could download some, some images from challenges. And then basically uh, you just apply your nice method. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, I think that being just a computer vision expert does not qualify you to actually solve demanding problems we have in medicine. That's one of my key perspectives I have. Also, when you look at all these COVID-19 studies that have been done now and that were published and they actually are of not a good quality, I feel like, because, for example, studies published where people use the wrong control group or something like that, yeah? So what does this help? It does not help anyone. And it feels like it's just a, some kind of hyped methods, but like deep learning is some kind of hyped method, but it's not like that this would bring us forward. So we need to work together in a team and everyone needs to bring in 
their expert knowledge. So even for medical imaging, I think it's definitely necessary to have good clinical cooperation. So not only for Kai, also for Mick, but even more for Kai, because of, when you want to go to the UR, then of course you need to have contacts and, and, and this, this needs to be your uh, collaborating partners. Yeah. This is also quite fascinating because I also do enjoy the fact, unfortunately, I didn't start it back when I was doing my PhD. I started about three, four years back, so I'm quite new at it. But I know what you are talking about and this entire point of actually seeing the clinical work, so that's sort of eye-opening and where you can actually bring in your deep learning or whatever methods, the computational uh, assistance that you are developing. This brings to a sort of fact that I heard from multiple senior researchers in the Mikhai community. So whenever I talk to senior researchers, they always like beat Nasir, beat Terry Peters, who is also in one of the episodes in this podcast, or Tianming, Liu, or any of the basically senior researchers. They always point to the fact that you have to work closely with the surgeons, clinicians, you have to talk to them very often. And then the reality is most often we are sitting in computer science or engineering departments. Mm. You, on the other hand, are in that sort of dream world of sitting <laughs> in a university hospital and leading an AI research group inside an university hospital. So what are the, let's say, awesome things and awful things about that experience? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely two sides of the medal. <laughs> so maybe what I did not tell you, I actually had two different offers uh, for assistant professorships. So one was at a computer science department, not here in Heidelberg, and one was here at the clinics in Heidelberg. So I could basically choose between these two worlds. But during my PhD, I worked at the German Cancer Research Center and we were developing uh, assistance systems together with cardiac surgeons, uh, which was actually also applied during the surgery. So I developed it from basically from the start to the end during my PhD. That always fascinated me, but I also knew that when I work together with surgeons, I have to be close by. You cannot be away for like, even five kilometers apart is too much. So actually the building needs to be next to each other, the computer science department or the hospital, or it should not be a large distance on the campus, or you basically become a part of it. I always felt very accepted by, by the surgeons I am working with and by the clinicians I'm, I'm working with. So it was for me a natural way to, to, to stay there and to become really a part of it. That's why I somehow decided to go to a clinic. But of course, what is more difficult is that the IT infrastructure is not like as you would see it in a computer science department. So we have to basically build up everything from scratch. Like beside, now I'm building up my own group since one and a half years or less than one and a half years and COVID-19 hit basically in between, which was also very difficult. So besides having like establishing a group, you're also establishing all of this IT infrastructure you need basically to do deep learning. So, and it's not like that you go into the clinic and you have to access to all of the patient data. Of course, not there are data privacy restrictions. So it's also uh, something I have to apply for or to, to speak to people. Yeah. So it's, it's not like that uh, you just go everywhere and have have all the data available. <laughs> also, making data usable for AI is something uh, you spend half of the project sometime. 
This is what maybe some of the more people on the computer vision side do not know, how long it takes to make a data set ready to be used by, by for AI. For example, we are currently processing an MRI data set that comes from 14 different hospitals in Germany uh, from pediatric cardiology. And it's just so difficult to clean up this data. You cannot, you cannot believe it. And every we are working with this data set now for a year or more, and still be experiencing surprising moments. Oh, I haven't seen this artifact in the data beforehand. Oh, or oh, this data set is flipped in a different way. Oh, we haven't seen this before. And something like this. So it's crazy, especially when you work with data that not only comes from the own hospital, but from different vendors from different sites. It's a completely underestimated problem in, in research, I would say, but it needs to be addressed. But you cannot publish it. That's the problem. Yeah, you have you do it. You spend a lot of time on it, but you cannot write a paper on that or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I guess this is also quite important in the sense that not only you, I mean, you have that background, but the students, uh, the PhDs, the master students, all who are working in your group, they know that, let's say, the competition endpoints are not endpoints, right? So those are sort of surrogates that we use to measure the performance of something, but yes. you actually know the reality. And I think that probably makes you a little bit more humble and probably a bit better researcher in the end rather than saying, okay, I did so well in so-and-so competition, so I am better than most medical imaging researchers who came before me, and doctors should take my deep learning model. Yeah, of course. I used to go to conferences like you, but no, we cannot. But sometimes I'm standing in front of a post and I think, okay, what's the clinical relevance of it? But I understand we need all different facets of research. I guess the part in the clinic is maybe the most difficult one from an organizational point of view, but we need to enhance that. And I also have the feeling that many clinics in Germany actually would love to have such own personal. So I don't know, maybe we see a good future trend. I mean, in Germany, for example, it's not only me working in hospital, also in, in Berlin, there's a, there's a big group in, in cardiovascular field that... Uh, works on similar topics. It would be lovely to see more people working in this environment. Yeah, that's quite wonderful. So I guess around that question, I will come to the more uh, technical part of it, but just to understand a bit your situation. So when you are an assistant professor sitting in a university clinic, who do you teach and where do you get your next generation of PhD students? It's actually an interesting question. So I'm doing courses for people that study medical informatics. And I do courses also for students of medicine who are interested in learning more and more in AI. And there are many students, many of the medical students here that want to learn more about it. And for this semester, I'm really proud of it. We started a new course that brings both words together. And uh, such students have the opportunity to work in groups together, like two from the more computer vision side or from the medical informatics and two from the medicine. And they do an AI project together. And uh, we had just started off last week and I'm really excited how this is going to go. But I think we have to establish such kind of collaboration very, very early on also 
uh, doing studies, not only in PhDs, but really, really early on. And I was really happy that we could, could do this here in Heidelberg. Yeah, this is quite nice because you see, like whenever we, so I sit in a computer science department, right? So the computer scientists have the problem that they don't understand health care, like technology mm -hmm. innovation in healthcare is basically people plus technology. It's never technology on its own. That doesn't have a chance. On the other hand, I think the more traditional, a little bit old school doctors are a little bit, uh, let's say, not open to technology. Of course, mm -hmm. that is changing with the new generation of doctors who have coded in their school and they are much more open. And I'm quite fortunate to have many of such doctors whom I can call colleagues, friends, we walk together. Mm -hmm. But I guess what you are really doing, Fendi, what is wonderful is that in the longer run, you are going to be, let's say, 10 years, 15 years down the line, there will be a group of people who are very early on indoctrinated into a interdisciplinary approach yeah. of doing research. Yeah, because you have to start establish a common language. And this step in starting to understand each other, I think, is actually not the easiest. So you have to teach people, you have to bring people together to do that. And for this semester, this is a real experiment, I would say, like the first experiment we, we do here. But I'm, I'm keen to learn and I'm really keen to see what the outcome of this will be. And hopefully it will be adopted also at other sites in, in Germany. Yeah, would be would be great. Or in Europe or around the world, not only Germany, but... Yeah, this is really an experience, I think, uh, that almost nobody else has, at least as early in their career as you, you currently are. I guess this is also something that no course is out there that will teach you uh, how to actually make this happen. So you basically have to do an experiment on real people to know what works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a really good supervision and also integrated our PhD students who supervise the single projects and, and, and things like that. So happy to report on this in the near future. <laughs> Wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the technological part of it. So if I understand your research, let's say from Mars, from a very, very high vantage point without looking on the nooks and crannies because that you can then fill it up. Then I see you as someone who is primarily a computer-assisted intervention image-guided surgery researcher who was one of the probably earliest who did generative modeling, generative adversarial networks into application of this particular domain. And you are also someone who is interested in basically generating this sort of realistic phantoms and making realistic looking phantoms. So that's how I see you when I see from a bit far away, mm -hmm. but maybe there are much more, of course, there are more nuances to it. So basically the question is back to you. How do you see these two fields basically interact? Yeah, of course, there are multiple applications for generative adversarial networks, also in, in surgery. And I think people came up with very creative ways to combine that, which, which is really, really nice. So I can remember we published something at Mikai 2018 on this, what you are currently mentioned. And back then I was much more into how can we create realistic phantom models for mitral valve repair? Because this is complex heart surgery, which 
is still very, very experience-based and surgeons do not have the options to train beforehand. And I was working on these phantoms and was just reading a paper by Sue et al, who published this unpaired image translation paper, which is, I mean, took off incredibly. Basically, I think it happened during the night. I had the idea to combine both of that and try to use this gun approach to make surgical training more realistic. Then I was like, okay, I have to try that. It's so that's so exciting, and it worked out. And still, we are working on it. So of course, we are not there yet. We have not solved it. I would say so. There's still there's still a large gap, especially on the robustness of these methods. I would say and how they can be trained in a reliable way. And therefore, we decided to make some of the data sets we have available to the community and to solve these issues together with us uh, this year at Mikai 21. And uh, we are organizing a challenge. Anibal is also part of it on this topic, which I hopefully sparks a lot of interest in the community. So I think lots of people after we published this came to me and said, oh, that's such an interesting approach. And can you give us the data and whatever? And here finally it is. <laughs> so please register for the challenge. It's, it's open uh, from April 1st on until I think in June is already the deadline. So this, the schedule is quite tight. So please check the website. It's called Adapter 21. You can look this up on the website. Wonderful. So yeah, Adapter is a great challenge since I'm also one of the organizers, co-organizers, so I can say shamelessly that it's an awesome challenge to <laughs> participate. <laughs> but I guess uh, uh, the question of connecting generative modeling with visual, like should have been an obvious connection, right? That generative modeling is particularly designed for image to image translation. So you are using it for visualization, making the visual better. Yes, I think from this perspective, I liked that guns are applied like to improve the perception. If we use generative models in other applications like medical images, I'm always a little bit concerned because the image might look realistic, but they're not physically sound. That's the difference to the use case we have. In our case, we only want to render realistic images. And therefore, I think, yeah, I like to work on these topics a little bit more. So we, we did not publish on how to transform this modality into that modality and, and vice versa. A lot of people did this, but yeah, we basically stick to the endoscopic use case. I mean, this is also something that was my concern when I was, of course, I was also very interested in guns and what are the applications that we can do, blah, blah, blah. And we went full Monty. We wrote like, okay, let's write a gun review article, blah. So that was all fine. But what in the process, I realized that when you are manufacturing information, which is not there, so it's finally statistical manufacturing of information. Mm -hmm. If you are doing something like there are many people who are like doing now uh, how the for these pathological cases, how the patient would look like if there is no pathology and stuff. Like the only way you are sometimes people do even super resolution, make the images look better. Like these are very difficult to validate. The only yeah. validation that you can do is if that makes the diagnosis better. There is simply no other way you can validate such things. Of course, people are coming up with many 
again, halfway matrix uh, surrogate stuffs. But what was really interesting in your application was that you don't have to worry about manufacturing information at all because it's not happening on real patient. You are doing it on training. And as long as you are showing towards some endpoint that the surgeons are getting better in their skills, who cares? right? So mm-hmm. uh, finally, when it goes to real patient, you are not even touching with any faculty. So, yeah, that's oh. true. But nevertheless, you have to... Um, so so we were thinking about how can we evaluate this? There are not good ways at the moment, I would say, for evaluating whether the image looks realistic or not. Like what we are using in, in guns is just a surrogate of what we hopeful would would give us a good impression. But often when you look at the image, you're like, no, it does not look realistic. And even if you ask a surgeon, do you think this image is realistic? The surgeon will look at you like puzzled because it's it's a strange question to ask. So what we decided then, okay, we are not only asking whether it's realistic, we also try to let them solve tasks on these images saying, what kind of pathology do you see on this image? And we knew what the pathology actually was from the phantom. Yeah, we we were using patient individual phantoms of mitral valves and then transformed this into basically an intraoperative appearance. And we were asking from which surgical phase is this frame? What kind of instruments are you seeing? And that way we try to evaluate the realism, actually coming up with more detailed questions uh, to the person who was looking on, on the images to evaluate it. And I think we should ask more such questions in user studies. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you because for me, if it's a generative modeling that finally ends up doing pretty pictures, you should not validate it on the picture quality of the pretty picture because there is absolutely no way of being sure. The only thing you can do is like in the, let's say, downstream evaluation, downstream task whether the person is doing it better with the generated images versus without having the generated image. Mm-hmm. That, that's the final, I would say, gold standard for evaluating any of such experiments. Otherwise, it's nonsense, basically, to evaluate on anything else. There are, of course, again, surrogates, some of my friends who are doing it with a sort of, let's say, segmentation uh, network, which is only trained on some kind of images, and then you get low quality images and then you get better and try it out so that's mm-hmm. also probably possibility but yeah but i think this is not only for guns i think in general we have to think of are we are actually evaluating in the right way <laughs> like also considering segmentation algorithms is the dice in our host of distance shouldn't we look much more detailed into the individual errors that are done we as a community we need somehow frameworks where we can more application basis of course but we can assess the error in a much more detailed way not just looking at the dice yeah Um, i mean this is like mean dice skills the entire thing and you get slightly better and at mean dice doing whatever and then you write the next next mikhail paper so yeah this is in fact quite interesting for us as well we are working on like you probably know about the sim to real in the endoscopic Mm -hmm. Uh, vision problem for a few times. So we wrote a Mikai yeah. paper. Now we have an Ipkai paper where we did a thorough evaluation about the failure modes, where things yep. fail when you are doing yes. things well. Funny enough, one of the reviewers said 
okay, everything is understandable. So what's the new thing about it? <laughs> it's good when it's understandable, hey? <laughs> yeah. It's mm. not like there were papers before which dealt with failure modes. I mean, mm. like failure modes are an interesting topic, but I guess you have to have a little bit of, I don't know, open mind to see that, okay, so just talking about better dice, better performance, mean on average performance, because what is on average performance, right? So mm-hmm. like you are probably missing on pathologies, weird pathologies, even if you are talking about segmentation of medical images. And if you don't really understand where you are failing, then average dice will yeah. only give you so much. So I guess from your viewpoint, moving forward, what sort of evaluation would you like to see? What would you appreciate as a reviewer, as an area chair for the Mikhail community? So I think the Mikhail, for the Mikhail format, we have only these eight plus two pages yeah, to evaluate our approaches. So of course, that's difficult to squeeze everything into this format, I would say, uh, if you're just looking at at Mikai as a conference. But of course, when we look at journals, there you can do more detailed analysis. And I guess if you are a reviewer that is coming more from the clinical side, uh, you should always ask the authors, what are the failure modes? Can you describe them? Can you analyze them in a much more detailed way? Also providing much better statistics on the actually input data, I think is often not shown. Also what I find often very, very missing is a thorough description on the evaluation technique. So you can do a cross-validation and whatever in a really different way. (laughs) There's not just one way to do this. There are many, many ways and you can easily do something wrong. You can create bias or you, you're not doing a stratification in the right way. And then obviously your result become meaningless. I think there are many individual points that could be improved in our descriptions, I would say. So I recently also done together in the DZHK, which is the Deutsche Zentrum für Herz-Kreislauf-Erkrankung. So basically a collaboration between all heart centers in Germany And uh, we did a review paper on machine learning papers in cardiovascular applications. And we've seen basically that most of the papers lack reproducibility. And if you're not getting to a stage where our descriptions become more reproducible, then I don't know, it's like a waste of time, actually. If you cannot reproduce it, then you should tell that this is significant what you've done. So I guess that brings us back to the question of this particular challenge that you are organizing, Adapter. So I guess you were very, very serious about the evaluation strategy of Adapter. So can you tell us a little bit about what you really considered as the major ways in which Adapter will be evaluating? So as I said, evaluation of just of a generative artificial network is difficult. Yeah, We would need to evaluate the challenge submission maybe with 20 experts here in the clinic asking them. And this is, of course, a little bit difficult to do. You're not saying we're going to do this, we won't do this in the future, but in this limited time span we have during this challenge lifetime, what we plan to do is, or what we, we decided to do, we decided to formulate an auxiliary task 
which is detecting landmarks on these images. And you have to detect those landmarks in the target domain. And uh, based on the quality of your detection of the landmarks, uh, we assess these images. These landmarks we define are somehow bound to sutures that were placed by the surgeons. So they, they specify specific positions. And we are saying that if the generative model was good enough to synthesize these sutures also in the target domain from a source, from a condition, condition source, source domain, then the image will be at least good from this perspective. Probably the entire image won't be good, but at least from this perspective. So that was our way to approach it for this year. And hopefully doing the challenge and doing interaction with all participants in the challenge, I hope we get also more ideas for a potential next adapt the challenge in 2022, where we can even improve on that. Wonderful. So I guess that brings us back to the question again, that because of your clinical focus, you are evaluating the challenge from something which is clinically more meaningful than generating pretty pictures. Probably from your, let's say, current research focus, can you give us a few examples of clinically meaningful problems in the cardiac domain where deep learning would be beneficial, but not something that people are really focusing on at all. So I would say the cardiovascular domain is probably a little bit underexplored when it comes to AI because collaboration with cardiac surgeons are a little bit more difficult because the surgeries are very serious. Just going into the OR and capturing data, the surgeon really needs to know you and also trying out novel things is not so easy doing such kind of procedures, which are really, really serious. Yeah? So a uh, patient can, can be dead if the surgery doesn't work well. And therefore, I guess there are many underexplored topics. So definitely endoscopy in mitral valve repair is something that is not really, really focused on worldwide. So we are compiling a data set here since years, but it takes us a long time to do that. So I often send our own people are doing it at the moment. So they go to the UR and capture these data sets such that we can work on them. And what I think what is very beneficial is to use such kind of data sets for mitral valve repair and to provide quantitative information to the surgeon. So to, for example, to measure the mitral valve in all dimensions during the surgery. So this is somehow also our goal, what we are looking into. And I guess there are many underexplored fields depending on whether the data sets are easily available or not. I see. So basically, when you make the data available, then you see a significant rise in making that data into their deep learning, but without that. Yes, yes. So I am also very excited. Hopefully, I, our data sets are used by the community very soon then. So I would love to see other research groups using it and coming up with more, maybe more innovative techniques than, than we have uh, already provided. So that that would be fantastic. I would love to see that. So I guess we are coming more towards the end of our one hour schedule. So I will ask more, let's say, broader question about how you see your trajectory. So of course, you have to write 
proposals you have to do write papers and whatever internal evaluation external evaluation make high deadlines sure but imagine a world where you you can control all these and these are necessarily minimal the nuisances and you have a perfect way of doing research so what would be the big questions that you'd like to tackle for the next 5 years in that perfect world what i definitely want to achieve is more collaboration among hospitals in germany so such that we not only using data here from heidelberg but only are able to work together with other sites and i think this is the step forward we all have to do and we cannot ignore it anymore that working on an isolated data set would solve us <laughs> it won't solve the challenges that we have however it's it's difficult to bring physicians from different clinics together working in one project you have to be very careful when you do that i am would love to invest more of my time into that like creating also data sets developing novel methods and ro more robust methods than we have now such that they become really meaningful assessing where do we still have large domain gaps due to different scanners and and whatever procedures this would be meaningful to really bring the ai techniques into the clinical reality so you think that scaling up the data the collaboration is key but it's not enough to scale up the collaboration between a computer scientist or a medical imaging researcher like you and the surgeon but it also has to be within or beyond yeah. the university hospital that you are currently working yeah. so data set diversity is a very key issue in i guess all over the medical imaging domain and of course the biases that come in uh, with it do you think that the biases will be reduced by bringing in more clinics into into collaboration or there will be some biases that will still be there despite uh, because of how the clinics work basically i think you can never completely reduce the bias because they are so many conditions that are diff different in each hospital in each country around the world uh, so you won't we never be able to solve this completely but i guess we see that and there have been many publications on domain adaptation and how to close the domain gap and some of them have been quite successful even using only a smart amount of data from other scanners and then be able to perform very very good also on this um data set so i think that's something we really really should should look into look into trying to improve our collaborations and and basically work together um from the point of what i would like to achieve here in in our division with respect to more like computer assisted interventions and surgical training so we we are working now on this mitral valve topic for a longer time and um we are using our mitral valve um, the phantoms we can produce the patient individual phantoms now also for surgical planning so we asked the surgeon to come to us one day before the surgery and basically do a rehearsal of the procedure and 
I found this really, really interesting. I think we still have to solve a lot. We are not there yet such that it's completely satisfying, but it's really nice to be somehow integrated in the workflow in a, some kind of prospective study where we see, okay, what, what works after the surgery? Could you make use of the information you, you obtain from the, from the simulation? What was helpful? What was not helpful? Was it realistic, et cetera? So I think um, from looking at what we can achieve here, this is one of the, the main goals we are working towards, really becoming integrated into a surgical workflow. We are already doing it, but only for some selected patients in the, in the pilot study, I would say. Yeah, I guess for a new PI, it's always a challenge to be integrated, especially into a system that is not there in place. Well, I would not say it's a, I'm a new PI. I would say it's the general workload of surgeons and what they have. And I really respect that because, I mean, if they have to work for 12 hours or longer, why should they should come to me and help me with my project? Yeah. So they really need to see the benefit of using this software or this simulator or whatever. And um, that's the thing, the, the major lack of time, I would say. It's not even the major lack of interest, but you have to come to a point where the things you were developing are really useful for them. And then I guess they, they come and take time and, and, and things like that. Yeah, it was really wonderful, uh, Sandy, to hear from you uh, the translational perspective. That's that's quite rare these days in Mikhail community, but I always know you are very much focused on the translational goals of AI and whatever you are doing, the methods development that has to be in the clinic. On that note, all the best for the coming years, Sandy, and I hope you do awesome work and all the best to both of us for a successful adapter workshop, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm curious to see where we're going to be in 10, 20 years, how, how our field will look like. And do you have any ideas on how our field could look like in, in 20 years or your workplace? I guess it's more like the data uh, can't be gone, right? So once you have figured out that data helps in making the like the process more optimized, it helps potentially in benefiting the economy, healthcare economy, it will be there. Whether it would be deep learning, steep learning, cheap learning, I don't know. That 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 probably will will change depending on the situation. So that way I I can imagine that maybe three or five years down the line, we will realize that the supervised learning with lots and lots of annotations won't work that well for our medical imaging community. The mm -hmm. uh, data sharing won't work. The, the, all the startups that came to replace <laughs> radiologists and whatever, they will be replaced by new interest of venture capitalists into something else. Um, <laughs> So that 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 I can imagine will happen. The good thing really is that there are some really interesting clinical aspects that's coming forward. So for example, I think you have also seen that World Health Organization for the first time announced that for chest X-ray diagnosis, like diagnosis of tuberculosis from chest X-ray, they just mm -hmm. recommended now that AI is an option instead of a human reader as a primary source of 
figuring this thing out. So that's mm. a massive, massive breakthrough in the sense that when World Health Organization says so, all those people who are around global health will notice because I guess it's as much for the first world as it is for the developing world. So mm. things, I guess, will be very different down the line. 10 years, I, I have no idea. Yeah, But I think also funding should provide us more opportunities to look into different directions also on how to develop cheaper technologies and things like that, what, what I said in the beginning of our conversation, basically. So yeah, I guess, I mean, this is true. Like, it's not like in a developed country like Germany, healthcare means it has to be expensive. That's not the case anymore, right? So like, if you are providing a similar kind of efficiency, accuracy at a cheaper estimate, then that would win every day. So that way, healthcare has to be cheaper. There is absolutely mm -hmm. no option to that. Yeah, how the reality will be that that would be very interesting to to see. Like, do you think in 10 years down the line, at least the surgery will be more open to artificial intelligence or like data driven approaches? I guess so too. If data set acquisition is not the major problem, if this becomes more streamlined, which is a little bit um, the case in integrated ORs, etc., then I guess there will be more interest by, by surgeons also to, to develop such, such techniques. That's my hope. Yeah. All right. So then to that awesome future world of collaborations and working together to make the healthcare a better place for everyone. Yeah. All righty then. Thank you so much for your time, Sandy. It was really wonderful talking to you. And thanks so much for sharing your views of this very fascinating changing landscape of AI in surgery. Yeah, hopefully I could give you some insights. I guess we could talk for hours, but it was a good start. And hopefully see you soon in, in real at, at some conferences and, and the whole community, basically. That would be nice also for this year to, to see everyone at Mikai. Absolutely. Let's hope Mikai becomes like live event or a hybrid event rather than uh, uh, completely virtual. Yeah. yeah. So bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Anivan. -bye. Bye,